Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. Also, make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also, if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures, and we're so glad you're tuning into this episode. Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I am excited, Josh Paskowitz. Got it. Josh Paskowitz, <laughs> I had to work on that one, is here. And uh, he, man, I, I tell you, Josh is easily one of the most educated people, not only doctorate degrees, but lots of master's degrees and then lots of certifications. Yeah. And then the breadth of his experience and his education. I, when I was reading and all, I thought, this guy's got to be 85 years old <laughs> and he's only 35. So he has packed a lot into his short life, and I am excited to have Thanks for joining us, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me. And by the way, I we're, we're really just met physically for the first time <laughs> right. today, right? But his husband, yeah. Zach, and I met a couple, maybe two years ago, and I kept, I kept trying to uh, get Zach on here, and then he says, you need to get my husband on here. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'll do it. And then when he started telling me about Josh, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, let's get Josh on here. He's so, my, uh, thankfully my biggest supporter with all that. Right. I, that's my, all my PR for me. <laughs> yeah, so thank you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, let's, I always like to start with kind of your origin story, like where were you born, where did you grow up, and give us a little sense of your family background, and maybe maybe edging toward your spiritual upbringing as They're well. inseparable for me. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. me too, yeah. Well, I was uh, born in Würzburg, Germany, uh, to two military parents. So both of my parents were in the Army. They were both mental health clinicians in the military, worked for the Army's psychology service. Wow. Uh, so that's an interesting place yeah. to start. Um, huh. Didn't live in Germany very long, so my mom had got, I think, had gotten out right after I was born, or maybe right before my brother. That part's not clear to my recent memory, because I have a, a younger brother that was born a year later. Uh, so we came back to the States, uh, ended up in Oklahoma. My younger brother ended up being born in Oklahoma, um, and, and kind of lived around the military, I guess, until we were about five, something like that. Um, my mom's family's from upstate New York. Dad's family's from Kansas City. Uh, so we were living in upstate New York for some time. And, and then my dad started kind of having a colorful mental health journey in some ways, um, which ultimately led to his kind of coming back to the VA and seeking some institutional help for that. Um, and, and ultimately, my parents got a divorce. Um, at the time, I didn't know why. But, you know, dad would actually come out of the closet years later. And so that was a big, big thing because he wow. came from a very conservative He's, Catholic. How old is he? Uh, 60 now, 60. Okay. Yeah. He's my age. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So All it was right. a different, you know, it's a different yeah. journey he was going yeah, through. Definitely. And uh, that was not something that went over well with anybody. I bet. His family, my mom's family, right. my mom, <laughs> you know, who was just pretty, pretty distraught over that she had two little kiddos and then was getting a divorce and, you know, trouble mm -hmm. there. So um, we ended up staying in upstate New York for some time um, with my mom's family. But, you know, upstate New York is, is economically, you know, northern Appalachia you know, in every way. Mm -hmm. there, there's just not a lot going on. And so I think- Dairy country, maybe? You know, it's, it's there's yeah. some of that, but not, you know, yeah. the, the main industry is is law enforcement um, and they have a lot of the state's uh, mentally handicapped adult population, uh, developmentally delayed folks mm. that, that they take care of who are wards of the state. So there's a lot of sort of, you know, home-based care and group homes and, and yeah. hospitals. And okay. so it's healthcare or law enforcement. That's pretty much what you do. Uh, so seeing kind of that on the wall, mom ended up coming back down here, wanted us to be able to have a good relationship with dad and that sort of thing. So we ended up back in, back in Kansas City, which is ostensibly where I grew up, the, okay. the greater Kansas City area. You've got to be a little bit 
creative with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so for obvious reasons, you know, folks weren't in the church. Dad wasn't going to the Roman Catholic Church anymore, which, which was the background. Okay. Uh, and mom didn't want to reconcile with it either, wasn't going to seek an annulment. Neither one of them wanted to claim some wrongdoing to get the sacramental boop that says you're free to move on with your life. So kind of went through a period of not having a ton of church involvement. You know, Christmas and Easter Catholics go to the high holy days, if you will, mm-hmm. and um, check in. Um, at some point along those lines, my, my great-grandmother had passed away, and she was kind of the matriarch of my mom's family and, and really, for all intents and purposes, raised my mom. And that was kind of like a big, big crack for her life, mm-hmm. you know, just like questioning everything. What is going on here? And she's pretty young, you know, so young, certainly younger than I am now by a decade or more. Okay. Um, so at that point in time, the Jehovah's Witnesses had come knocking on the door oh, wow. and caught my mom just at the right moment of grief. And that was the thing, you know, so, you know, how do you want to be together in paradise with your family forever? Let's make that happen. You know, mom was real, real receptive to that. Her, her new husband at the time was definitely not. I think he was raised Presbyterian and didn't participate for a long time. So there's some trouble yeah. there. Uh, but mom really got very active in it. You know, we had the in-home Bible studies with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Mom eventually got baptized. And there we were five times a week at the Watchtower Society for, well, wow. until I graduated high school, actually. So wow, fourth grade on up, I was raised Where, in What Watchtower part of the Society. city was that? So that was down in um, Butler, Missouri. So okay. Bates County. We actually lived really on the fringe of Bates okay. County. But I ended up going to high school in Butler, Missouri. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll never forget my dad's response to that was and agnostic at best, you know. That cannot be the only expression of Christianity that you're exposed to. <laughs> so he had found what was then called the Country Club uh, United Church of Christ uh, in Kansas City, kind of the Brookside area, cross street from where Zach works, actually. Um, and that he took us there every other weekend as, as visitation allowed. So we would kind of get some counterbalance. It was a UCC? UCC church, okay. right. They're now Kansas City UCC. Right, right. Um, had a great minister there that was, you know, I man, I must have been a weird kid, you know, in so many ways. But I remember uh, my dad, I was at, at home, you know, his house for visitation one week. He's like, the minister called for you. You know, it's like, <laughs> you're 12. <laughs> what is going on? But, you know, there's a lot of internal polemics between this Roman Catholic background and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the very socially progressive UCCs at the time. Yeah. You know, they were, I think, the first what they called open and affirming. Uh, UCC Church Problem. in Kansas City. Really? Yeah. Wow. So that was like where, where, you know, LGBTQ folks could go and just be themselves and be welcomed and that, have a church life, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and it wasn't always super harmonious, you know, it was the 90s, right? So people were, they were figuring out, but they were really, you know, vowed to do it together. So mm-hmm. um, that that went on that way for a while. I remember our wonderful minister there, uh, Sue Thorne, who's long since retired, but was just such a godsend to my life, introduced me to um, John Shelby Spong, who was an oh, Episcopal wow. bishop, right. um, you know, kind of, I would say, the successor to Paul Tillich. Uh, yeah. And so that was what I read at 12 and 14. You Jesus know. Seminar guy. Jesus Seminar guy, yeah, yeah West Star uh-huh. Institute sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know. So I found that just mind-boggling. Interesting. Okay. You know. Um, and long story short, you know, I just kind of was bouncing You're around. You were that at 12? I was. Come it's on, man. strange. <laughs> Uh, and I, he it's no wonder you're in a mix of society, right? You're 12-year-olds <laughs> reading. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Tillich and, and Spong. Um, like I said, I was a weird kid. So uh, kind of got through high school. I had been introduced to martial arts when I was a really young kid. I just always had an affinity for East Asian culture. And um, that was something I pursued in earnest. And, and my parents really both supported at different junctures. Mm-hmm. But that kind of got me exposed early on to Buddhist philosophy, which... I thought through was Taekwondo. Through Taekwondo, yeah. yeah, through martial arts. So yeah. there's in the Taekwondo school that I grew up with, there was this thing called the Horongoge, which was these mythological Korean warriors that had these five precepts that they followed, and we had to recite those things in our dojong. And um, well, they were written by a Korean Buddhist monk, Wan Hyo. Uh, so there was this, you know, sort of ancillary training, but we also did mukyum, you know, meditation before and after class. So okay. it was just a kid like miming the teacher, but it planted some seeds. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fascinating. So by the time I graduated high school, I'd had enough of Christian rhetoric and uh, decided to really immerse myself in that. And there's a number of ways I got there that are kind of colorful. Going to theocratic ministry school with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Wow. Um, <laughs> and uh, learning how to minister to Buddhists, and they didn't have a lot of good ammunition. And I remember reading that book and being like, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so that's where I went uh, after high school. And that okay. kind of got me to being a young person. Yeah. Where'd you go to college? Well, kind of all over the place. So I had an interesting situation. 
Um, and that I was, you know, we hadn't passed this legislation these days where you could have health insurance and things like that. You were 26 and be supported in school. But uh, there was there was enough situation. That I couldn't really afford to go to college. The Jehovah's Witnesses proactively don't want you to go to college. Uh, it's not allowed. It's too worldly. Um, and that'll get you booted, you know, but I was already in that arena. Uh, and, and parents couldn't afford to pay for it, but I would still be held into their income to figure it out, right? So I actually kind of put the damper on that. And instead of going straight to college, went to a Buddhist monastery in essence, you know, started hmm. training um, around the country with, with different Buddhist teachers and uh, becoming a monk in short order. That was my wow. first foray out of high school. That's wild. Yeah. I have, I've hardly met anybody who grew up in Southern Missouri who went into <laughs> become a Buddhist monk after high school. You're the first. So this is good. There's going to be a lot of firsts here on this one. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so tell, so how long did you do that? So that was pretty much, I mean, up until recent history, I was very much still involved in that kind of as a, as a at least partially full-time endeavor, but certainly made time for other things. Um, you know, kind of did their equivalent of what would you consider seminary training. Uh, wasn't in any formal accredited program, um, but eventually found my way leading a couple congregations here in Kansas City. Um, like Buddhist. Buddhist like congregations. Sanghas. Yeah, Sanghas, right. Okay. right. Um, By the way, Sangha is the... Pali word? Uh, Sanskrit and Pali. Sanskrit yeah. and Pali for basically community. Community, right? yeah. Right. Similar to Kohelet in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we, we apply it. Kahal is the Kahal. Hebrew word for yeah. assembly or community. And it's the same. Yeah. And then it got translated over yeah. into ecclesia in the Greek, which mm -hmm. Ecclesiastes. Yeah. yeah. And that's community, basically. Mm -hmm. So Sangha is the... Yeah, Buddhist equivalent. Yeah, yeah. It literally means assembly. Uh -huh. um, it, it's interesting though because we, you know, through our Judeo-Christian lens, often interpret that word as being a little bit more egalitarian than it is. Right? Which, it it, it which doesn't one? sangha. Okay. It doesn't actually mean assembly in the same way. It meant the assembly of the monks and nuns. So it was like this is you know Buddhism. You to be a Buddhist, you take these three vows about refuge in Buddha, the teacher, you know, mm -hmm. the, the ideal, refuge in Dharma, the teachings, mm -hmm. and refuge in Sangha, the community. Mm -hmm. But actually, in context, it would mean the teachers. So uh, it's kind of a, you know, neologism to apply it in the way we do in the West as okay. a Sangha. But okay. yeah, and long story short, yeah, without yeah. being too pedantic. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was leading a few communities here. I had started running around the Episcopalians a little bit. Maybe that John Spong, Jack Spong seed was yeah, planted yeah. early. And discovered clinical pastoral education. And um, was really trying to find, as a young person who had these bizarre credentials and bizarre social standing, you know, how do I have some peers? How do I develop a, some collegial relationships? And, and that was kind of floated as, well, mainline Protestants, I'll do this, so maybe do that. Uh, and I did. And that was kind of what flipped the switch and brought me into, okay, now I need to get a seminary degree and do all these things. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. So you, you ended up going to, like, getting a Master of Divinity? Is that what yeah, you Yeah, ma Master of Arts and Religion. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where did you do that at? So, Graceland University, the Independence Campus. Okay. Yeah. And then so, you ended up doing a, a Doctor of Ministry, which I, yeah. I did a D-Min at Fuller Theological oh, cool. yeah. Seminary. Yeah. You did one. So, College at, of Pastoral Education and Supervision. So, that was okay. actually an in-house uh, degree that, that uh, CPSP put together. CPSP is one of the two largest accreditors of CPE programs, which is typically hospital-based, you know, clinical training programs mm -hmm. for pastoral counselors and clinical chaplains. Um, and so our branch was very much involved specifically in the psychodynamic field. And the powers that be were trying to find some, you know, like the DMIN programs didn't fit what we were doing, but they wanted us all to have access to that and tried to build some relationships, but uh, couldn't get us. So you know what? We can create our own program. Uh, so they did. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it was it was really great. I had a chance to study with, you know, honestly, some of the, the, the more weighty and important voices in the field, mm -hmm. uh, some of whom are now in their, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hmm. Had been doing it almost since the beginning of it, you know, in, in this country. So. so it was a pastoral care and counseling track yeah. mm -hmm. that was rooted in uh, yeah. psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, yeah. Basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And of, of the Freudian variety, unabashedly, you know. Really? Not Jungian, but Freudian? Nope. They would definitely Freudian. You know? <laughs> Jung is the easier route, yeah, you know. Right, but, right. you know, Freud, that's a whole conversation. But but Freud had one of the earliest lay psychoanalysts, Oscar Pfister, was, uh, who, who Freud approved as, mm -hmm. as a psychoanalyst who wasn't a physician. By the way, there's a new movie out 
Yeah, I saw it recently. I haven't yeah. seen it yet, but somebody said it was amazing. I think it was great. Yeah, theoretical um, conversation between Freud and C.S. Lewis. Yeah. 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 Was it interesting? You know, it was good. <laughs> but what I would, I would, the caveat I would give, even as something of a Freud nerd, okay. uh, you really have to be rooted in not only, you know, Lewis's life and person and yeah. work, but Fr Freud's life and person and work and his daughter. It's not, it's, it's not all expressly mapped out. So okay. it's a little heady, but, okay. but it is a great movie. Yeah. I would know C.S. Lewis way better than Freud, but certainly yeah. know Freud and Jung um, yeah. fairly, yeah, you know. Well, and that, that was not in depth. But what yeah. played with that was, you know, Freud was not totally antagonistic toward religion, you know, in the way no. that he would refer to himself as a godless Jew, but that was his own life, you know. Uh, but his, the first lay analyst was a was a, a Protestant minister, you yeah. know, Oscar Pfister. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I always time. have thought that there, I, I, you know, I've always think that there's, legitimacy to the psychoanalysis route sure. of yeah. counseling and yeah. always we used to call it inner that those early people who called got it jumped into the inner healing yeah. Christian so it was yeah. sort of like they baptized Freud into a Christian context <laughs> right. and called well there was a whole movement called it yeah. inner healing the pastoral count American pastoral counseling association I think that you know there was originally um I mean I can uh, go back to like Francis McNutt would have been an sure. early you know and yeah. In my vineyard background, yeah. Francis early on would would speak at our vineyard conferences. Really? Yeah. yeah, Richard Rohr was a charismatic Catholic who dove into that. He very ended familiar up with Richard Rohr's becoming work. more Jungian, right? Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, anyway. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I love those connections. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so give me. So you've you've done. You've, have you lived in a monastery in Asia? I have, yeah. I spent about a year in India in particular, uh, and I've spent shorter terms uh, in, largely in Vietnam and Taiwan. Um, yeah. And we're all... Th so I'm still... Like, I could tell you every kind of Christian on the planet yeah, and yeah. give you all the history and background because, you know, right. that's my world. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just now in a two-year training with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield sure. doing their MMTCP program. Mm -hmm. I'm in my second year now with oh, them. Great. And I think it comes out of Vipassana mm -hmm. tradition. Yeah. But I couldn't tell you the difference between what I'm doing yeah. and your, your Zen Buddhism sure. or, or any of the types. I know there's probably yeah. as many types of Buddhists as there are Christians, maybe. Well, what I'm I tell sure. people is that there's more. So, oh, you know, more. Okay. <laughs> uh, Buddha, Buddhism is around 2,600 years old, right? We yeah. look at Christianity and you can go Orthodoxy, Catholicism, the Protestant Reformation, all those things that yep. branch off there. Yep. We've had 600 more years right? you know, to branch, and we have. So yeah. um, I don't know if it's it's quite as diverse, but it's it's actually, in, in practical terms, very similar. But I think I can wrap that up coherently Please, in a short because, form. because uh, yeah. I am still feel like I'm, you know, walking in the woods and can't, yeah. can't see the big picture. Yet, you know. Well, I've, I've been trying to translate this to, to Western audiences for a long time. So okay. for, for those theologically minded folks that would be familiar with these terms, I think we can make sense of it real okay. quick. There's essentially four movements of, of Buddhist doctrine and practice, right? So, and, and I think that there's Christian analogs to each of them. So we essentially have Theravada. That's where your Vipassana tradition comes from. So Vipassana okay. is a technique in the Theravada school. Uh, Theravada means the way of the elders. And so it's orthodoxy. We could consider the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, kind of the group of practitioners that are trying to do things as close to what they believe the Buddha and his, his disciples were doing at the time. And they try not to change it, and they try to maintain a high level of fidelity to it. Okay. Um, there were a lot of problems with orthodoxy uh, in the Buddhist sense, um, largely because the, the precepts that the Buddha prescribed for the monastic community, and they were all monks in the early days, were pretty strict. They weren't allowed to touch money. Uh, they had to beg for their their food, their alms, uh, and a lot of culturally sort of bound activities that were to their region of, of what some scholars would say the Indus River Valley. Mm. So as Buddhism started growing outside of that area, and the Buddha passes away, especially after that point, they don't yeah, have by an the authority way, for figure. folks, Buddha would have lived 500 years before Jesus. Five, 600, yeah. Yeah, five, 600 years mm -hmm. before Jesus in India, right? Yeah, modern day Nepal. Modern day Nepal. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, yeah. okay. he was a great authority figure, grew a great community. Yeah. They did, did a lot of, I think, revolutionary things that still I, are revolutionary. Even when I was like a yeah. very conservative evangelical yeah. who who read, who, I, I was always into the intellectual evangelicals, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but but uh, even even when I was studying Buddha and my, I was a religion major yeah. in Baylor, mm. and I was like, dang, 
this dude figured out a lot of stuff just sitting around thinking. <laughs> the Jehovah's Witnesses even <laughs> thought that much. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like amazing just to be, yeah. you know, the things that he came up with based yeah. on reflection. Observation. And, yeah. and observation and the human condition. Right. And, and he, obviously he blended it with, with Hinduism. To well, some I would degree, say to, to a large degree, maybe this goes to the next point of this yeah. sort yeah, of schema. You I know, mean to interrupt you. Oh, so no, the first about. one is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, Theravada, okay. the way of the elders. Yeah. They, they started not being able to follow all their own precepts. You know, it was a little bit oppressive. The monks moved out of these areas that had an almsgiving tradition. They started receiving money. They weren't even supposed to physically touch it. Now we can't even be monks anymore. Enter the Buddhist Protestant Reformation. So this is what's called Mahayana, the greater vehicle as the Protestant okay. Buddhists would say, yep. to the way of the elders. Um, and this is pretty much, so, so Theravada Buddhism is found, actually not in India, but that's a long story. It's getting reintroduced. Southeast Asia. So we're thinking Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, Thailand, you know, okay. Burma, uh, the, this, this region. That's where it's kind of maintained. Uh, certainly it's in Nepal still, but anyway. Mahayana is pretty much everything in East Asia that is not that, with, with notable exceptions. So this is China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, they all practice this sort of reformed school that really took on a totally different, more colorful, syncretic character in some ways. So, so there's the, the, the Reformation, and this is probably the largest group of Buddhists worldwide. Then there's the Buddhists everybody knows about, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He was the head of the Galukpa, the yellow hat sect of, of Tibetan Buddhism. These folks are a little bit harder to classify, but uh, we could maybe call them a syncretic tradition that's analogous to Santeria. It's kind of orthodoxy mixed with indigenous shamanism. Okay. Uh, and in fact, the first scholars of that school, when they encountered it in, in um, Bhutan, Tibet, Mongolia, that's the main region, they didn't even recognize it as Buddhism because it was so syncretic. Hmm. And actually, Tibetan Buddhists are 1% of world Buddhists. So everyone knows the Dalai Lama. Probably the smallest group of Buddhists okay. are the Tibetan Buddhists. But so they're kind of the syncretic, um, you know, Santeria-like tradition. And then enter the Zen folks, which is the school that I was trained right. in to come from. You're and Zen master. Yes, that's the, that's you, the turn of tell phrase. Tell us about Zen and then tell us what a Zen master sure, is. Okay. Sure, <laughs> So um, Zen is, if we can put it in Christian terms, it's a restoration tradition. So it looks at this syncretic Santeria sort of thing. It looks at... Um, the Mahayana innovations, it looks at the orthodoxy and says, I think y'all are missing it. So let's kind of go back to what we think maybe the Buddha's intentions was. You know, some varieties of churches of Christ can be associated with that, the Latter-day Saints. There's a lot of variety that consider themselves yeah, restoration. I'm now a, a ordained DOC, which comes, yeah. which is a part of the restoration, yeah, you know, exactly. Christian Church Disciple of Christ. Yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so I had some appreciation for that from my UCC days. Yeah, yeah. So I remember that. And we're in full fellowship with UCC. Right. Right. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Great group. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, the Zen folks out here kind of are having this re re renewal movement, restoration movement, back to the basics, but none of the continuances they thought were were it. And so in a lot of ways, it's very simplified. It's a very simple technique. You know, Zen comes the word zazen, sitting meditation. It just means meditation. Um, certainly, it's got its own colorful elements. But anyway, so what is a Zen master? Well, it's a very bad translation. That's what that is. Uh, we might think of it as like a master carpenter, right, or, or a master plumber, right? We think Zen master. This is some and guru and sometimes treated that way, but uh, it literally means you've mastered the forms that, that you've been entrusted by your community and other people have been trusted by their community and, and almost a cyclic succession from the Buddha um, saying that, yes, you get what we're, we're, what we're doing and you can hand that off as a lineage holder. So um, mm -hmm. the tools of the trade are at your disposal. Now, whether or not you live up to using them appropriately is up to you, right? So there's yeah. a few of us that have those titles and it's not always pretty and what you would expect, but okay. alas, religion. <laughs> so um, just, I'm, I'm going to pick a few famous figures and you tell me which of these four schools they would okay, fit Okay, I'll do my best. So like yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh, or, Vietnamese Buddhism, Mahayana. Mahayana. Actually, but also, okay. so Zen, sometimes people put Zen as a subset of Mahayana. Okay. Um, he's, he was a Zen master, Thich Nhat Hanh, okay. but, but probably would be more associated with the Mahayana school. Okay. And then what about, oh, I'm going to blank on, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name, the dude that I think he just passed recently, but he was one of the Harvard dudes that was experimenting with LSD. He's got a Jewish background. Oh, Ramdas. 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 So Ramdas studied with a guy named Neem Karoli Baba, who was a Hindu guru. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't even Neem Karoli Baba's longest disciple, but he was the one that made him famous in some way. Uh, so he was not a Buddhist officially but certainly flirted with Buddhist concepts, as many of Neem Karola Baba's students did. So somewhere in the mixture of not anywhere, but also circumambulating Mahayana, I would think. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Interesting. The, obviously, they've had a lot of 
influence, I think, in the West, right? Very much Ram so. Das, Thich Nhat Hanh, mm -hmm. even I think even the Dalai Lama to some degree. Oh, that's huge, I would say. Yeah, influence. Um, yeah, who are who are maybe a couple other the Western influencers that are, who? Oh who goodness, you know, I I think that outside the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh, you start getting kind of obscure. Okay, um, but I mean, there's people that have certainly had their moment of fame. Zen Master Sung San, a Korean missionary, came here in '68 built something like 112 congregations in his lifetime. Very famous. Shinra Suzuki Roshi, Japanese Zen master, famously wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, huge yeah, text. Um, yep. Yeah, out of the uh, San Francisco Zen Center. Okay. Um, both of those folks would be Zen, Korean and Japanese mm -hmm. Zen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So when you spent time in the three different monasteries mm -hmm. in in Asia, yeah. which, which three locations were you in and were they all in... So actually, Were they all Zen Buddhists. Yeah, no. So I, I spent a lot of time in India. Like I said, a whole year there it wasn't in one monastery. I was actually okay. a traveling monk. So there's a tradition uh, for some some monks and Hindu Hindu gurus as well, sannyasis, to not stay in a place longer than three days. That's part of the mm -hmm. spiritual discipline. So I was bouncing around with a sannyasi as a personal attendant from monastery <laughs> to monastery uh, all over India, and so stayed in a bunch of monasteries there. Mm. Um, same thing in Vietnam. I've been invited at the host of the Vietnamese government, actually, for United Nations World Day of Vesak that we held in Hanoi, I think, in 2018. Uh, so I've been paraded all over mm. <laughs> Vietnam, but spent probably the most time uh, in Hue, central Vietnam, um, which is kind of their epicenter of Buddhist culture. Uh, same thing in Taiwan. I've had all over Taiwan, hmm. which is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an island you can circumambulate in a day. So it's a second circumambulation in this conversation. I'll try to <laughs> limit that. But yeah, so just kind of a, a bunch of different monasteries in short. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. So um, so were you living as a, had you taken a vow of celibacy at that time, this yeah. period of time mm -hmm. in your life? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's required, right? That's one. Of the uh, it depends vows. on school. So in the okay. Theravada school, absolutely required. And the Mahayana school, it's required half the time. Uh, and the Vajrayana school, pretty much not required. And the Zen school, also pretty much not required. Okay. So that was one of those kind of things. And as we examined it over time, it's, it's like, this seems to be more of a cultural predilection and a, and a cultural custom rather than something that has doctrinal scruples. You know? Okay. Yeah. And then where would a guy like Ken Wilber fit into this picture? Well, Ken Wilber, so, yeah. People might not know, but he wrote, yeah. he's written a lot of books. He's had, I think he's had some pretty big Western influence mm -hmm. and uh, wrote his biggest, probably what he calls his magnum opus, which is this thick, it's called yeah. Religion of Tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, yeah. He, yeah. And I like his four, I, I can't remember what he called it, but you know, wake, growing up, waking up. He has a yeah. The, that scheme I know what you're talking yeah, about. I couldn't quote it to anyway, you either. Yeah. yeah. No, Ken Wilber's an interesting guy. It certainly has had, I think, a bigger effect, uh, effect on sort of the academic acad academicians among mystical and contemplative religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's dense. You know, yeah. getting into his stuff is just such a high level intellectually. Yeah. Um, I would say stimulating, but certainly dense tome that he's, he's written many. Um, he, he, I don't think we can fit neatly into a Buddhist schema because he really draws freely from not only the East Asian religions broadly, but also Western philosophy and, and, and Western religion as well. Okay. I mean, I would say Wilbur's the great syncretist of our time and okay. unfortunately underappreciated, you know? Okay. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Do you know Paul Smith here in, in Kansas City? Doesn't ring a bell. Paul um, pastored Broadway Baptist Church oh, sure. for decades. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was Southern Baptist, and then he moved it into Charismatic, and then he moved it in. Yeah. He just kept moving progressive, progressive, progressives. And yeah. then when he hit my age, he he finally figured out he was gay and <laughs> divorced yeah. his life. His granddaughter went to my church. But anyway, yeah. Paul Paul's written a couple of books, um, and he he's taken Wilbur's... Um, some of Wilbur's model and yeah, translated yeah. that into a, more of a Christian mm. Uh, mm. book. So, so like Richard Rohr and w Wilbur have written yeah. inter forwards and in afterthoughts oh, really? on two of his books. Well, actually. you couldn't ask for better better so, than that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, like Paul is a friend. He's in his eight, early eighties yeah. now, but. Um, yeah, I, I've interviewed Paul on here too. Oh, I'll have to look uh, that up. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good interview. He's, he's a fascinating journey himself, yeah, you know. Yeah. So anyway. Very cool. Um, okay, so, man, where do I want to go from here? Bhakti Yogi. Yeah. <laughs> Bhakti. What, tell us, what, what is that? 
So, you know, I, I think I t- talked about in my, in my life um, having some struggles with divinity, you know, mm-hmm. um, with the, the, the internal Christian polemics. And you know, my best friends growing up were, were Hindu, very devout Hindus. You know, they uh, owned a couple businesses in town and then, you know, I'd go play cricket with them in their parking lot and, and eat food with their, with their parents. This mom would make wonderful Indian food and then, you know, go to the Hindu temple and um, all these things. So I had this influence of these really holy people who were really devout and, mm-hmm. and, and pious, good folks mm-hmm. who somehow in the metrics of a lot of the religion I'd been exposed to were not going to make it. You know, that was a big problem for me growing up. And so, you know, kind of entered high school, went to this not, non, not atheistic, but certainly non-theistic tradition, which is Buddhism, and just kind of put that on the back burner, you know. Uh, at some point, I realized that I, I needed to figure out where I was with this theology thing. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, so this question about God or not God, where are we with that? Um, and some of the people I'd met that were most convicted, I think, in a, in a tangible way of, of a belief in a, a deity, a personified deity, were mm-hmm. uh, the bhakti yogis. Um, so bhakti means devotion. That's one of the four traditional schools of yoga. There's, you know, karma yoga, which is just being an ethical person in the world, you know, good business practices, treating people well, you know, reaping the rewards of what you sow sort of thing. There's jnana yoga, which is the intellectual side, trying to discern those, the Buddhist path, you know, what is the nature of reality through intellectual permutation. Um, And of course, there's bhakti, this path of just devotion. Certainly it's scholarly, it has those elements, but at its heart, it's, it's about seva, service and bhakti devotion. Um, So it's a form of Hinduism that, um, is really just about that, you know, everything you do devoting your life to God before you even, you know, eat your food, you actually prepare food for God and offer it to God and you eat the remnants, the prasad, what's left over and everything is within that container. So spent a lot of time doing running around India, right, with the bhakti yogis and mm. and trying to pick up what they are, were putting out. Are all the yoga traditions and are there as many yoga traditions as there are Buddhist traditions? Yeah, that's hard to say. And you know, there's two forms of yoga, right? There's, if we want to be broad about it, there's, there's spirituality yoga, the, the, the thing that we mm-hmm. might think of. And then there's the modern physical sort of practice. The asanas, the physical practice that has its roots into antiquity, but really was kind of like a turn of the century thing that was exported to the West. Okay, there's thousands and thousands of schools because every every white dude, if I can, as one uh, that gets some credentials and ability to market something, will do it, mm. um, and they often fall on their face. So there's thousands of schools of that physical exercise yoga, usually with a trademark after them, mm-hmm. uh, and and fewer schools of what you might think of as the streams of yogic philosophy and spiritual practices. And would all of those flow out of Hinduism? Yeah, and, and you know, the, we should say that Hinduism isn't a thing. It doesn't exist, you know. Okay. Hin- Hinduism is an academic catch-all that's convenient to kind of capture this stream of, of, of spirituality that comes out of the Indian subcontinent over the course of 5,000 years. Okay. Um, it's so much, It's if you were to put Christian sects and Buddhist sects together, they still couldn't touch on the diversity of Hinduism. Wow. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, so, you've got... Uh, three books out that came just boom, 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 right? <laughs> right. Yeah. 22, 23, 24, Zen happiness, Zen Buddhism, and then Indian spirituality. The, the, and that's just about ready to be released, what this coming up. Yeah, in April, so actually I just found out that the second book, there's a German translation. So I'm, I'm throwing that in there. I'm counting it. Nice, so that's coming nice. out the 15th of this month. And then May 7th, the Indian spirituality text will, will hit shelves. Yeah. Okay. And the Indian spirituality is the one I want to read. I haven't read it yeah, yet. Yeah. But it in the you know, in the summary, it said that you you kind of given a an overview of Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Jainism, am I, yep. correct me if you I'm got pronouncing it. these wrong, Buddhism and Sikhism. Mm-hmm. Most Americans say Sikh. I think Sikh, Sikh. Sikh is actually more preferred. So oh, there are it? some Sikhs that would say Sikh. my friends that are Sikh say Sikh. I hear that more in America. <laughs> and then you go to India oh, really? and you hear more Sikh. So oh, really? It's an internal yeah, oh, okay. struggle. Okay. <laughs> well, my friends that I know are, are American Sikhs. I've noted that here yeah, too. Okay, yeah. interesting. All right. Yeah. From India, but mm-hmm. America, you know. Right. And then I think in, even Valerie Core, uh, I don't know if you're familiar. Core, yeah, K A U R. Yeah, yeah. She's, I don't know her, but I know the name. Background is sick, I uh-huh, think. Sure. Oh yeah, I have a friend that's uh, going through in his residency for psychiatry. Oh, who's yeah. just, who his family background is sick. Very good. So, yeah. but tell us, give us a your quick three breakdowns sure. of Hinduism, Jainism. Yeah. And what's interesting, I have another friend who's African American who grew up Black Baptist. Uh. 
did all of his theology degrees. Now he does a deal called Booty Cristo. And he's a, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he's i I've had him on and he's a, he's a monk and yeah. um, very much into Jainism. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we, we discussed Jainism on this podcast. For I, that's, see, now I'm going to have to be mining this, your, your <laughs> <laughs> archive here. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the four what we call Dharmic religions of, of India. So those are kind of the native religions of the Indian subcontinent or, or their mainstreams. Uh, it should be said that Islam has a long history in India as well, but it is not a native Indian religion. So I want to respect all of the Indian folks, the Indian spirituality that is Islam, mm-hmm. but it's not a Dharmic religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Dharmic religions, you know, Hinduism, like I said, is kind this academic catch-all term for this this stream of of thinking that goes back to the pre-written, you know, pre-verbal history, even in a way, uh, just the antiquity of of the Indian subcontinent. Um, And and there's so many varieties of it. The basic supposition, if if I were to try to sum it up and do some justice, is that you're a soul, not a body, right? So that there's a spirit soul that is more, more real than anything that physical or material matter can even hope to reflect. Uh, the problem with that is that material consciousness is where we live, breathe, move, and have our being, as we might say in the Catholic tradition. Uh, but but unfortunately, is is often less than satisfactory and uh, causes us a lot of problems when we overly identify with it. So the, the Hindu stream of thought, and this carries over into all the Dharmic religions, is that that soul needs to be liberated. Liberation is called moksha. It needs to be liberated from material consciousness, re-enjoyed eternity with, with God, the, the supreme ultimate nature of God, which... And by yeah. the way, I was taking a Hebrew class yeah. at Midwestern Baptist Theological sure. Seminary, and there was a gal in there who was from India who mm-hmm. was Hindu, taking a Hebrew class at Midwestern Baptist Theological I teach at Central, and we get some diversity like that, and, too. Yeah. And I was talking to her, you know, like, and her, she thinks that the ancient Hindu tradition of Brahman is, is monotheistic. That was her take on it. You and can that, say that. I thought that was fascinating. You yeah. can. There's actually and then with a thousand manifestations yes. of that God, with which is all the Hindu gods, right? There is a so, strong monotheistic current in Hinduism. Okay. Um, and, and, but again, so you have to take a wide view and know where you're taking yeah, the view yeah, yeah, from. But yeah. yeah, it's there. Um, Interesting. So, but the, but that supreme personality of God as a monotheist element uh, is usually not considered to have a personality. It's not anthropomorphic. Right. So it's a, it's an impersonal, you could almost say reality. Reality yeah. itself is God itself, which is all things everywhere all the time. Yeah. Um, and so, so Hindus hope to re-enjoin that in a spiritual sense. A radical immanence of all things. Or, or if you spread yeah. out incarnation, it'd be everything's incarnated. Exactly. Uh, in, in this nature of God, right? Right, yeah. right. Everything yeah. is an emanation. Yeah. As sunbeams to the sun, Hindus would say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part and parcel. So not the same thing, but of it. You know, the, the beams are separate and identifiable. Yeah, and I've been yeah. attracted to panentheism. Now, pan-in, that's new pan-in to me. Panentheism, yeah. which... Is a, it's a, it's a in it's 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 a lot of like Richard Rohr considers himself a panentheist. Okay, I can situate. And myself. so, like, it's not that. pantheism where it's you're completely identified God in yeah. whatever this table is completely identified. Sure. Panentheism leans heavily into the imminence of God or mm-hmm. the or the radical incarnation of God everywhere in. Everything I could situate myself there, I'm, yeah. but still yeah. has some separateness to some distinction. To what, yeah, some distinction. Yeah, versus you know, so it doesn't emphasize like in your classic Christian theology the transcendence of God who is totally other and separate. Right, right. and kind of to me that God falls into the classical Greek ideal concept. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, for sure. And I'm I've not I'm moving away from classic. It's hard theism. to be a Neoplatonist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So, um, so, um, so, what is Jainism then? So, in Jainism that context again. You could all use a variety of Hinduism in a way because the fundamental suppositions are the same. It's just how do they apply them? So, the Jains have this this spiritual lineage of Tirthankaras, which are the the enlightened masters that taught this dispensation of Dharma. Again, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, Buddhism—they're all Dharmic religions. Dharma. Very complicated Sanskrit word, actually. Uh, we typically teaching, think of teaching, though, yeah. yeah, like, uh, but it also means 
internal quality, external phenomena. So it's the nature of mind. Uh, it, it's the nature of reality itself. It's also uh, your station in life, what you do. It's a very complicated word, but mm-hmm. pragmatically, you know, it's this is a religious dispensation. So of, of these Dharmic religions, you've got this Jain dispensation, which basically follows the same thing. They have the last Jain saint, Mahavira, um, who was a historical character that had traits and teachings that we can trace. And um, basically taught a very strict form of ascetical practice, uh, the renunciation of physical matter, you know, staying really physically put in one place, um, you know, keeping your karma extremely clear because the goal in Jainism, probably above all else, is if you neutralize your karma, that means you're not going up or down, right? And the karmic <laughs> cosmic scale here, if it becomes neutral, that's when you can escape physical existence ah. uh, and and then enjoin moksha you know liberation and become mm-hmm. yourself a liberated would, does that soul. mean the same thing as nirvana in the buddhist tradition moksha? pretty much functionally okay. yeah and actually we use the term moksha as well in buddhism okay so and it's interesting each of these things relate to each other i put them in that title of the book kind of in their historical genesis and order mm-hmm. so jainism appears in this hindu milieu buddhism appears in the jain hindu milieu okay. so uh, probably my my somewhat idiosyncratic academic supposition is that the Buddha studied with Mahavira, the last Jain saint. Um, it's too similar. The precepts and the monastic training are just too, they're too close to not be related. Mm. The time frame matches up. Th- that's not a total minority report. Other people, uh, Stephen Batchelor, famously, he wrote Buddhism Without Beliefs, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist as well, great books. Have um, you read Robert Wright's book on why Buddhism is true? I'm familiar with it, but I haven't okay. read it. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah. I read that one. Was, I've heard good it's things. It's an interesting take. Um, yeah. Anyway, and then tell us about Sikh. So Sikhism is, is kind of the, the one that's probably the most unique, the least related to the other three. Uh, often looked at as a syncretic tradition between Islam and Hinduism. That's not really true, but certainly has elements of, of Mughal culture. You know, the Mughals invaded India, but they also murdered one of the, the, the Sikh gurus mm-hmm. uh, famously, and that didn't win the many prizes. Sikhs are really all about seva, all about service to the world. That is their that is their dharma. But they were also a warrior caste. They took it upon themselves as sort of um, an ostracized people to be defenders of religious liberty early on. So when the Mughals were massacring everybody that didn't fit into their Islamic ideal, the Sikhs were like, we'll take up swords and fight them for you, Hindus, for you, Buddhists, for you, Jains. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the liberation theology in a dharmic sense, <laughs> you know? Yeah, not, not the nonviolent no, they would not be Civil afraid. Rights, they they yeah. try to balance what's yeah. called Miri and Piri, so the temporal world and the spiritual world. Mm. So there's spiritual ideals and aspirations, and there's temporal realities and aspirations within them, and, and they don't look mm. at them as opposites that can't be reconciled. So you can pick up a sword and, and defend you know the lives of others and their religious liberty and still be a spiritual, God-fearing, holy person. Okay, yeah, yeah. So... Oh, man, where do I want to go with this? We're running out of time here. I could talk for hours about it. Yeah, it goes stuff. quick, doesn't it? I know. So, <laughs> well, so I'm, I want to get into, so I'm curious, you, you've got this other thing that you mentioned, independent sacramental sure. movement. Yeah. And that, and maybe bridge that into, because like what I've noticed, like I'm in a centering prayer group that yeah. comes out of the it's Christian contemplative tradition mm-hmm. that yeah. actually it's Father a, Thomas Keating's Snowmas Mountain Monastery. Yeah, yeah, that's that. And Richard Rohr picked up on that. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of Richard's yeah. former board members is the guy that leads the group I'm in. Oh, very cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. And I've been, you know, and then I'm in this Vipassana, or some people call it insight mm-hmm. meditation mm-hmm. tradition that I'm studying with yeah. Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. And I, as I study the Christian contemplative prayer yeah. thing, and I study the Buddhist thing, I'm like going, what's the difference? Because I'm not, and yeah. I, I ask people this all the time, and I'm, I still haven't gotten an answer that, that satisfies, they seem well, so yeah. overlapped, <laughs> except for the Christian language that sometimes comes with the, conti- yeah. it's almost like to me, there's some Christians that are afraid of being Buddhists. I think that's exactly it. So they do, they call it contemplative <laughs> prayer and put Christian language around, but do that's the same exactly thing. It. Yeah. And then there's others that don't care if they're Buddhist or Christian either. Judeo Christians, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Jubus, whatever the case may be. <laughs> Buddhism fits easily with a lot of people. Right. See, it's a non-theistic religion, right? So it's not atheistic. It's non-theistic. It's kind of like if I don't play tennis, that doesn't mean tennis doesn't exist. It's just I don't do it. So if you want to hang out with me and play tennis, you can do that. That's what Buddhism does mm-hmm. really well, you know. Um, 
So the, the, so the centering prayer piece, you know, this is the unspoken reality of it, is it's directly influenced by Buddhism. Yeah. You know, so... It's, there's no way it couldn't be, It's as I'm looking at it. It's a derivative. Yeah. It's a modern derivative. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's... But it does date back into the, what, Middle Ages? Well, at least, the problem with this is there's no, there's no there's contiguous no. transmission. Okay. So it's a reinterpretation through kind of a Buddhist-inspired lens of ancient Christian practices. Now, okay. I'd say at the language of the mystics, we're all doing the same thing. I think so, too. You know, if you study the mystics of right. any tradition, it's like, it's, oh, they're talking about the same thing. Right. <laughs> Union being the huge yeah. component to all of it and everything's... Yeah. Right. Anyway, I think the difference with with Buddhism that has made it portable and accessible to these environments is that it's a practice. It's not a belief system. It's not orthodoxy. It's orthopraxy. Right. So that that bolts on everywhere. And a lot of these these you know in the the, the probably from Vatican II on up certainly when Pope John the twenty third invited interfaith and ecumenical dialogue and the Roman Catholic Church stopped you know damning everybody that wasn't within the church to hell <laughs> that was a big there's a document nostra tate the christian church's relationship to non-christian traditions the roman catholics officially said jews aren't horrible and and also everybody else they have pieces of god's emanation as well and those things that are holy and true we should accept and live to yeah uh, my it's my a, order it's a deep type pluralism would you Very call much that so. yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and who would it would who were some of the big Catholic theologians that really pressed into that when that was made okay? Would that be? I you know I think that that was a huge. I mean certainly was it, Keating was was around okay. that time doing yeah. that center at the genesis yeah. of centering prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, there was tons of intermonastic dialogue, so a lot of this stuff happened on a smaller scale. It wasn't being the big academic theologians that that kind of came later. But okay. this influenced Protestantism as well. Yeah. You know, I mean these great voices like Tillich, you know, the yeah, undeniable sure. influence to that pluralism and yeah. uh, even John like Cobb Jr. I think who's not familiar to me. So okay, I have to take your word. He's for a big it. process theologian. Okay, yeah. he came yeah. out of the Charles Hartshorn and okay. Whitehead. Process yeah, theology yeah. tradition anyway a little bit a little bit more okay. familiar with that arena yeah. so um, yeah where where I think I've got five streams no so where I know do you want to go I with know that? so yeah. I'm, I the independent sacramental movement what is that so that is a stream of liturgical Christianity um, that really dates back to uh, the separation of the Dutch Roman Catholic Church from the Roman Catholic Church over issues of papal infallibility and the ability to elect their own bishops and things like that. So the genesis was uh, the old Roman Catholic Church in the Netherlands um, it got into a fight with the Pope, and they wanted to elect their own bishop. The Pope wasn't having it. Uh, he wanted to give them somebody. said, well, we're going to do it anyway. We don't historically need you. Uh, there's this titular bishop of Babylon that got shipwrecked in the Netherlands and uh, consecrated this bishop that they had elected and so they could confirm their children. It was a a big political mess. Uh, That denomination still exists, the old Catholic Kirk, the old Catholics. Um, They found their way through a number of... still doing Latin masses and stuff. No, they're actually super progressive. So there are branches (laughs) of this that are super conservative, but the official old Catholic, super progressive, female clergy, married clergy, you know, they're in full communion with the Episcopal Church. They're, you know, basically Episcopalians, to put it in American terms. Um, But that tradition made its way to the U.S. Um, and largely because there were a bunch of disaffected Catholics who weren't Anglicans. And so they wanted to maintain their Catholicity and, and be able to practice that outside of the auspices of Rome. So mm. the old Catholics were a way to do that. That has become a very tra- diverse, uh, very colorful tradition over the past hundred years or so. Mm. Um, but I found my way into it by accident, coming back from Taiwan, being homesick, deciding again I was going to foray into this sort of theological world, uh, you know, and and eventually found myself being ordained in that tradition and pastoring a community and reconciling a lot of my, you know, religious trauma from my childhood with my uh, chosen suppositions and examined positions in Mm -hmm. adulthood. And, um, Still, some of my best friends hang out there now. Interesting, know. interesting. I was, I wasn't even familiar with that. It's about a million of us in the United States, oh. and I, I'm more formally with the Episcopalians these days, but um, for a number of reasons. But uh, it's, it's a beautiful tradition. Okay. Sometimes too colorful. <laughs> All right. So, so, so let's. Uh, so that gives people. Wow. You know. Yeah. yeah, you, yeah. You, everybody, you can see why. And plus, he's he's part of the mint, so he's got a. He's easily <laughs> probably one of the highest IQs I've ever interviewed. Okay. So. But uh, man, you're—it's fun to—you've you, got, yeah. You're not dull and boring. And I, lo- I love. <laughs> well, that's that. good. always super, good to hear. Yeah, you know, most bookish kids like a, myself need to hear that. There's a lot from time of nerdy people who you know, you know, just aren't interesting. Yeah, you know? yeah. and it's like, yeah, this is fun. <laughs> so um, no, so let's. I so this has been a curiosity to me yeah. since my recent because you know I I grew up Southern Baptist <laughs> and I was in sort of a 
a charismatic evangelical movement. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm, I'm probably a process guy now, yeah, yeah. but at uh, any rate, um, Zen Jesus. <laughs> mm, mm. And I don't even know if that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. But what's fascinating to me is, you know, I always read Jesus through the eyes of Judaism, you know, monotheistic, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, like when he said things that sound like he was claiming to be God incarnate on earth, you know, then you, oh, well, then he's the only unique incarnation of God in flesh and blood, right? Yeah, born unique of the soteriological virgin. event in history. Yeah. Yeah. Born of the Virgin Mary and all this kind of stuff. But, yeah. but you know, like I wouldn't walk around saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. And, you know, of course, I was very schooled in C.S. Lewis's yeah, Lord yeah. Liar Lunatic and all these yeah. kind of things. And But, you know, now that I'm reading you know, a lot of other stuff. Yeah. And I go back and read some of Jesus's sayings. And then I'm like going, huh, I wonder, Buddha lived five, 600 years mm -hmm. before Jesus. I yeah. wonder if some of those teachings made their way to the Middle East, to Palestine. And was Jesus, did Jesus ever interact with some of those? Because mm -hmm. if you read some of his stuff, it could fit really easily into a more Buddhist philosophical context, context yeah. rather than a Jewish yeah. monotheistic context. And perhaps yeah. was even why it was he was so controversial and people oh, I think so. accused yeah. him of blasphemy. You know, he said stuff that... You couldn't say. Yeah, <laughs> you don't say that. Right, right. If you're sane, you don't say that. <laughs> yeah. No, that, you know, that's complex. I mean, there are some, some scholars. I think I, I hesitate to use the word scholars. I think they want more imaginatively would love for the lost years of Jesus between his childhood and 33 to have gone, you know, into what we know as the Thomasine missional area and encountered the East and the Silk Road, which, I mean, that was happening, right? Like mm -hmm. Buddhists, Buddhists. And yeah, the really, disciple Thomas, by the way, is said to have gone to the East yeah. and disciple, you know, evangelized the East. Yeah. And so the churches of India still largely trace their, their uh, history back to St. Thomas's yep. apostolic ministry. Yep. Um, so, you know, the, the first Buddhist statuary was Greco-Roman in style because it was transmitted along those lines. But, but personally, I think we have no evidence to say that happened. And I think Jesus's message is sufficiently unique. And I love that because Jesus is saying some of the same things, right? And so what that tells us again is that, as Richard Rohr would say, there's this perennial message that occurs time and time again throughout history that's, you could say in theistic language, God making God's self known to people through our faculties. Um, and then I'm getting into some heretical Christology here, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, it because works. High Christology, low Christology. And I think you can bridge both, which is perhaps can, my weird instead understanding. Of doing but, a, instead of doing a hierarchy, yeah. do it sideways or yeah. something. Well, you even know. like a continuum rather yeah. than, oh, yeah. a, than yeah, a linear, you know, polarity, right. I think. Yeah, um, that can work too. But yeah, Jesus was without any question a mystic, you know. And again, the mystics are always speaking the same language regardless of where we're situated. You can't read John 17, the high priestly prayer oh, sure, yeah. that we're... The, may you be one as the Father and I are yeah. one. I mean, it's yeah. all the oneness stuff, right? Well, and beyond mm -hmm. that, even beyond the, the you know, synoptic in John's gospel, um, you know, we if you look at the history of the church, it was conciliar. You know, we were voting on what's true about Jesus, what's heretical about Jesus. And the number of people that said this was true, you know, however many hundred years yeah. now by the, by the fourth council, yeah. whatever, um, you know, yeah. the gospels are written was seven years later. the minority report actually correct? The re reality. <laughs> well, because you look at the gospel of Thomas, for instance, which is a fascinating wisdom text, not included in the official canon of Protestantism or Catholicity, but uh, you read that text and it's like, holy crap, this is a guy that, that got it. He got what everybody is saying and did it really well. And pieces of that are still in, in sort of conciliar yeah, my, gospels. My professor's just kind of dismissed, ah, it's Gnostic. But, well, and it's not know. even a Gnostic text, which <laughs> is my frustration. <laughs> like it was in the Nag Hammadi library. It is, however, not a Gnostic text. <laughs> it doesn't teach the, the Gnostic, the Gnostic worldview, of, yeah, right? Yeah, the pleroma that. and all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, Jesus was a mystic. The mystics have it figured out. Let's all do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm there. I'm yeah. there. All right. So, so then help me out with this, okay? Because we're 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 going to go over a little bit. That's cool. Yeah. So evil, mm. evil. Throwing some theodicy at me, aren't yeah, we? Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, this is this is challenge because my friends in the process world, yeah, are like one of my friends just wrote a book. He's a he's a Nazarene who's going to get kicked out because he's LGBTQ plus affirming, and he just wrote a yeah. book called "The Death of Omnipotence." Oof, can't say that. And the and then he's he coined a term omnipotence. 
Amy be in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, so he's, most process theologians argue for an uncontrolling, loving God. That would be your, so God is always co-creating, but he doesn't act unilaterally. Mm -hmm. So omnipotence dies a thousand deaths because, it, you know, if you just start thinking about what God can't do, even if you're a Calvinist, yeah. Calvinists would, you, if you drill them down, there's still things that Calvinists say God can't do, yeah. right? Yeah. So then you just start going what God can't. And then, then when you get into suffering and the problem of evil, that's where it's so hard to hang on to. Yeah. An omnipotent God who knows, you know, who has all Some power. Some would say it's impossible. And yeah, I feel that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, how do, if God just stands by and watches the Holocaust and doesn't do anything about it, like that's kind of all for some sort of, you know, melodrama that's playing out in yeah, the heavens that actually like, never makes its way into our modern lives. Do we, <laughs> we want to worship a God who sends people, his kids to hell, her kids to hell for all eternity? And, you know, it's just, you yeah. just get into these weird concepts. I just want to, I want God. My new verse, I memorized thousands of verses, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. conservative evangelical and Catholics. We don't, <laughs> yeah, but I memorized the word of God. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you know, my new one that I, I've only memorized one the last four years. Yeah. It's first John four sixteen. God right. is love. Those who right. live in love, live in God and God lives in them. Mm -hmm. And that's where I want to, if I'm going to build a th an idea of God, but, but evil yeah. is still really hard to deal with in, in a theistic theodicy thing and then if i understand say buddhism it's almost like it doesn't exist it's a non-issue which is not to say that things are not that, that couldn't be cast as evil but they still exist. talk about doing no harm we, well we would talk about skillful versus unskillful okay right so or it's ms or sung san in his broken but i think uh, often succinct english would but, say but for our audience yeah. they're you know in the buddhist tradition really it, everything is as it is and and you have to deal with life on reality and on reality's terms and yeah. everything's always a mixture. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's always impermanent, right? right. Every and impermanent so, and insubstantial. Doesn't really have a, a finite self nature that you can pin it down to. Exactly. So yeah. it really almost like evil doesn't exist. And this is where you get in the idea, well then suffering really doesn't and is Well and we would say that's also true. But I mean so, there, so there's this important so doctrine the, in Buddhism. So that's where I bump yeah. in a because I'm like an justice and just, you know, I see in the world and there's suffering. Well, it's Miri and Piri we talked about in Sikhism, right? The temporal and the spiritual. In mm -hmm. Buddhism, we talk about rupa and shunyata, form and emptiness. There's sort of this dual nature that reality can be perceived through, you know, as spiritual and everything else, good and evil. There's this binary. But at the mystical level, what we tend to see is it's more like a yin-yang, if you're familiar with that symbol, that sure. yes, there's these two distinctive parts that you can find and you can point to. But when you start looking at the line between them, there isn't one. It's not a black line. It's not a white line. It's it's the nature of this mixture coming together that there's distinctives, but also it's one thing that's inseparable. And it's all mixed up together all of the time. And all of the mystical religions, regardless of their, their origin or genesis, all speak about this similarly, right? And I think that the, the problem... And, and the human experience is able to contain all of that, hold space for all of that. It doesn't have any other option. Yeah, right. right? I mean, but like, we... But yeah. we struggle with that. Right? Well, I mean, back to the I psychoanalysis <laughs> conversation, <laughs> exactly. right? It's, I think that, and I'm, I'm a therapist by day as my yeah, primary right, right, job, right? right. Yeah. Um, I need to come see you, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. When we, you know, kenosis, what Jesus would say, self-emptying, I think that's kind of what we do. Philippians, folks, the self the famous, yeah. most famous, probably ancient M in the whole New Testament. It's a huge thing that Kenotic we ignore. passage. <laughs> yeah. And when Jesus empties himself, mm -hmm to become flesh and blood in this yeah. famous Philippians 2 right. passage. So, so I'm using a little bit of creative interpretation of canonic process, right? right? right. But it, when we do this self-emptying, which I think is becoming transparent, at least with ourselves and maybe a spiritual director or, or God, whatever we can fathom that to be, we suddenly realize that all those pieces that seem to be irreconcilable are already reconciled within us, just not always to our conscious mind, you know? And that's, that's heavy lifting. Because we all have these pieces within ourselves that could be cast contextually or out of context, probably more likely, as evil. These, these impulses, these things we've done, right? But then it's like in our life, do we view ourselves as evil? Well, probably not. But in my philosophical scheme, I need that grew, to exist. Like I did. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, was, I was pretty 
you know, convinced uh, from Total the Southern depravity of man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You're only saved by grace. You but know? you know, I, I have, a, in my clinical I like this. Go, I think no one really goes there. They, they voice well, it, but. Well, know? like, I, I just wrote a, a, a blog called Original Blessing, which mm, I was, sure. I was borrowing from Matthew Fox's right, right. masterful text, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Original Blessing. But yeah, living out of Genesis 1 and 2, not Genesis 3. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. Right. And Genesis God three is the world true. We good. experience shame. It's a human condition, but we really want to. Like, what parent has a yeah. newborn kid and goes, "Oh God, what a dirty, rotten sinner." Well, they're there, but we know that they're missing some <laughs> neural connections, you know. So no, it's like the most beautiful. Like, oh my God, there's a God. You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, wonder, and, and I think that yeah, we focus too much on Christology. We focus too much on the. I think that contemporary theologians and the light of globalism and the internet and being able to talk to people with a multitude of experiences through time and space. Now, I think we need to go back and talk patriology. You know, what is the nature of God? Because a lot of these problems, if we, you know, we're always stuck on Christology, pneumatology, the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Who is it that they relate to or emanate from or part of in Trinitarian theology? When we start getting down to that, which is the heart of mysticism, a lot of these things reconcile themselves, you know? And you do have to, I think for healthy human beings, you do have to learn to hold all of these things, hold space for all of these things. Either that or be ripped apart by and them. Be, That's the choice. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. be... And be able to do that with some gratitude and and in this moment right now, right. with all the beauty yeah. and shit all mixed together. All together. It's okay. Right. I, it's and if you don't believe it, and I can just step back and breathe. And, you know? breathe. <laughs> and you know, I've needed that because I I my meltdown came from my anxiety disorder and sure. 30 years of insomnia mm -hmm. and then late in life tried to start dealing with that and yeah, got, yeah. got addicted to Xanax and alcohol for a couple of years. And that human beings have been doing that, that since was time immemorial. That led to my great meltdown. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then my meltdown and then how I process it didn't fit, fit well with my evangelical yeah. past. Right. 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 <laughs> Cause I went to the two therapy models that helped me the most yeah. after my meltdown were a DBT, and that's that's yeah, what like got me into med but that's what got me into mindful meditation. So the the, the lady that founded um, Marshall Marshall is yeah. a Zen master. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and Amy Tibbetts, who founded deep you know lilac centers here so, in yeah, Kansas sure. City, uh -huh. she studied with Marshall Linehan. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and then because Marsha, she's still around, right? Yeah, Marsha's still alive, yeah. and I hope to get her on my podcast. And then mm -hmm. the other guy is Richard Schwartz, who founded IFS Internal Family Systems, sure. mm -hmm. which you know DBT probably builds off a cognitive behavioral therapy yeah, model for and sure. i think ifs maybe play around with psychoanalysis it's certainly psychodynamic yeah yeah, yeah yeah and so those two i found really you, helpful. you could ask for worse that's a, <laughs> that's a great combination you know anyway the ifs stuff in particular you know realizing that these disparate parts of the self that we all contain the multitudes that we all contain yeah. uh can and do speak to each other. And we can do that consciously and realize that there's a dynamic organization to the unconscious that doesn't require our effort. It just requires our awareness and acceptance. Mm. You know, and when we become aware of ourselves as we are, reality as it is, then accept it inexorably and inevitably as it is, then we, we fall into accord with it spontaneously, mm. you know. And if you throw your cup at me, I don't look at it and be like, well, that's going to hurt and sit here. There's an instinctive you know, accord with that reality. And when we can do those things, all of these sort of, you know, super heady, you know, uh, super Western, not, not inspired by the rest of the world's wisdom traditions, you know, theological suppositions, they just don't hold water. And what I would say is when, when the cogs of reality and the cogs of philosophy or our mental um, suppositions don't mesh, right, the cogs of reality always, always win. So it's best to, to figure out how to mesh with them. And that's what leads to religious deconstruction, that's I it. think. Yeah. And, you know, religious trauma can, can like for me, both of those yeah. religious trauma and deconstruction were, you know, like when I was, yeah. I'd lost all the pillars of my life yeah. and they were gone. Right. And then like, where, and where am felt, I? Where's this? Who am I? Yeah. Who have I been? Does God exist? Who have yeah. I? I thought I was praying to God all these years. I don't. Was I just talking to myself? All, you know, I mean, right. it just really just just messed with me, you know. And so yeah. I've I've been in this process of rethinking, which yeah. is my new translation of the word 
repentance, metanoia, like rethinking. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of a, anyway, yeah, I like it. <laughs> so, yeah. So I've been repenting, but in a new way, you know, rethinking. I think it. there's a lot of validity to that. Yeah. <laughs> Taking me to, you know, some of my evangelicals say, no, you're not repenting. You, if you, you know, anyway, yeah, you'd be yeah. messing with what you know, Anyway. If that was working that way, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Exactly, right? right? <laughs> I'd be like praying for you, Josh. To, and I'd appreciate you know. that too. But <laughs> and I still, yeah, I still, yeah. yeah. Anyway, no, I care. I still care for people. I still care for. I think the that's the, the end result of, of having our yeah. heart broken and our world deconstructed. Yeah. You know, that, that to me is the proof in the pudding. Of Force John four a God is love, right? We talked about that mm-hmm. when all after all of our self crushing, ego blowing, you know, spirituality dissolving process work has happened. Mm. What we always, almost always, without exception, come back to the world with is. Wonder, awe, gratitude, and love as the only response to all of it. Yeah, and I and I and the thing is, is I even have atheist friends who still respond with those things to the world that they're they live. Universal, in. they're human. Right, that's right. that's reality itself. That's God, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah, I think so. Well, gosh, I could go on for hours, <laughs> but thank you. This was wonderful. Yeah, thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, how can people find you? And uh, like I say, I'm I'm going to jump into your books, and I'm really interested in the Indian spirituality. Sure, yeah, so, yeah. But yeah, um, tell people how they can find you. So my website's super easy. It's drjrp.com, drjrp.com, drjrp.com. And uh, you've got uh, your your uh, a, a huge in-depth, uh, <laughs> what do they call that? Biographies, yeah, CVs, well, something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, let's see. Your books are featured on there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Got a link to my blog, I think. Yeah, is there. your blog. Yeah. I just and yeah, you I can just, email me. It was I just read there, your yeah. blog on mythology you posted today. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So very mm-hmm. cool. Well, thank you for being on Spirituality Adventures. Thanks everybody for tuning in with us, Josh Paskowitz. There it is. And oh, by the way, you have a. I guess in the Buddhist tradition, mm-hmm. do you have a mentor that gives you a new name? Almost, yeah. I've had that happen four times <laughs> in my life. And so the new, what your name? I couldn't say. So it. probably the one that I think you drew from my website probably is Shunyananda. Shunyananda. Yes. So that one actually, it was. That's kind how of a you joke. signed off your blog. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Shunyananda. Yeah, it's still sort of my. And what my, does that mean? Here. It literally means bliss and nothing. Uh, okay. It was a joke from uh, at one point actually in my spiritual journey that I've kept because Shunya. It means nothing. Ananda means bliss, but both of those have implications of, you know, divinity. So Ananda is the, the bliss of God, and and Shunya is the zero point that all else dissolves into reality itself, which is also the divine. So, mm. yeah, it's kind of it's a funny joke that stuck with me, and I've, I've appreciated it. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, folks, take care. See you next time. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com, sign up for one of our monthly supports, and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I want to encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe. Be sure and share any of the episodes that you like. And be sure and make comments if you like them as well. This helps us uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments. And go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.